0: I was, uh, Thursday night, I had the opportunity to take my son, Carmine, to the movies. Ant-Man was out, so he's a superhero connoisseur. We had to go see Ant-Man, and I bought him a hat. I bought him an Ohio State hat, and I made the mistake (laughs) of posting that on Facebook. (laughs) And unbeknownst to me, started the... Moundsville Baptist Church Civil War that I I just walked into unarmed, unready. Cindy Price, I thought we were friends. Started it off and she just put wrong team on the... And then it was just a cacophony of anti-Ohio State propaganda on my Facebook page. I didn't tell my poor, sweet little boy that all of you were so mean to him, by the way. But uh, look, <laughs> I'm gonna cheer for WVU unless and until they play Ohio State. God forbid. Um, you know, or you know, some type of you know scenario develops where if they win, it hurts Ohio State. But I'm, I'm on the I'm on the same team with you. You know, everybody just I just need you to relax. All right, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. <laughs> there's a um, there's a story I, I, I read it in the Reader's Digest I guess it's true uh, <laughs> about a, a a gentleman that worked for a company he was there uh, he was the spokesman for um, this coffee company and he had done all their commercials and had done them for years and uh, he switched companies and was working for another sponsor that was a cigarette company and when he filmed his first commercial he walked in you know he got ready read through all of his things uh, took the cigarette on camera for the first time ever took the cigarette took a nice long drag blew out a beautiful smoke ring looked into the camera and said now that is good coffee <laughs> and <laughs> old habits die hard old habits die hard why Why is that? Because once we've gotten used to something and it becomes natural, especially to the point where we don't have to be thinking about it per se to do it or to say it, it's difficult, if not impossible, once something is that ingrained in our nature, to change it. Or at least very difficult to change it in any quick matter of time. What became clear over the course of Israel and Judah's history is that they could not change their rebellious ways. At least not in a way that could sustain, or at least in a way that they could sustain. At least in a way that could rescue them from God's judgment because they had continued to break the covenant. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 13 of his book, verse 23, says of them, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then also you who do good, then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And so what became so tragically apparent over even human history is that we're all crooked all the way down. And we lack the ability to genuinely save or rescue or even change ourselves, especially enough to make God accept us. In Israel, that was a shock as much as it was a tragedy in their time. They had the law. They had direct revelation from God to guide them and to shape their lives and yet they just kept rebelling. They kept breaking the covenant every chance they had. The law couldn't save them. The law couldn't change their hearts. Law can never do that. Law was not given to do that. But to show just how wicked the human heart really is, how incapable of pleasing God or obeying God, The human heart really is, and in so doing, show us how desperately we need a savior. They had all those things. No matter how much religious pressure you apply, sin only grows. No matter how much religious pressure you apply, sin will only grow. So, how can we be saved? How can we have life? Who has the power to make us new? The latter part of the book of Isaiah, in God's word, can be a little difficult to understand because he's addressing there two different historical situations that will actually come to pass well beyond the prophet's lifetime, Isaiah's lifetime. Chapters 40 through 55 start to address, in spite of Israel and Judah's rebellion, the desire, the ability, and intention God had to save his people. All the way back in Isaiah chapter 7, King Ahaz had refused when Isaiah challenged him to trust God alone instead of the power of Assyria. And most of Judah's history uh, between 734 B.C., that point, and the destruction of Sennacherib's army in 701 B.C. is the result of Ahaz not trusting the Lord and trying to trust Assyria instead. So from chapter 7 through 39 in Isaiah, the question is raised, will Israel trust God, or will Israel trust the surrounding nations? That question eventually is going to fall to Ahaz's son, King Hezekiah. Will he trust God when he's threatened by the Assyrians? And thank God, Hezekiah's answer to the question was, yes, the problem was, in chapter 39... King Hezekiah made a horrible mistake when some envoys from an empire called Babylon showed up and he showed them just how prosperous and how successful and how beautiful everything in his kingdom was. And so from there, that allows the prophet Isaiah to transition his message in his book to the future, the immediate future and the eternal future. To the coming Babylonian exile in the following chapters of Isaiah, the last part of the book. And so rather than focusing though on that event itself, Isaiah is concerned with focusing on the questions that event was going to raise in Israel. Right? So Isaiah isn't so much of a historian about that. It hasn't happened yet. But what Isaiah is going to address throughout those latter chapters is questions like, will. Has Israel been defeated? Will the Babylonians defeat God? Have Israel's sins defeated God? Or maybe said better, uh, will God restore Israel since they've sinned in this way? Does God want to deliver them from the coming exile? Can God deliver them? Will God deliver them? How can Israel be restored to a right relationship with God if their sin is so bad that exile is going to result? And so that's what Isaiah takes up. And as he begins to reveal God's intention, God's design in the latter part of that book to save through the work of a righteous servant. Through whom all will be restored, all will be made right, all will be made new even eventually. So when we pick up where we are this morning, in Isaiah chapter 55, there's an invitation there from God to share in the heritage of his servants was talking about at the end of 54, God will be serving an abundance of mercy and pardon at a banquet that he is going to throw. And they won't need any money. God's going to provide everything. And this salvation is explained in terms of an everlasting covenant that God will make, which will be the fulfillment of God's covenant with David through David's descendant, this righteous servant that Isaiah talks so much about. And the sign of that covenant is, will be a permanently, irrevocably renewed universe. But our focus this morning, I don't like to preach Old Testament texts completely removed from their context, so I just wanted to let you know where we were, what's been going on, but our focus this morning is on how God will bring this about. How is he going to bring about this great salvation, if we're looking at Israel's sinfulness, how is he going to permanently, irrevocably renew the universe, how is God going to accomplish all of this and how that ties in to Moundsville Baptist Church in Moundsville, West Virginia on July 8th, 2018 what will be able to ensure that God can accomplish everything that God wants to And so in Isaiah 55, God invited all who wanted salvation in Israel and Judah to come to him. And he promised to accomplish it through his word, which has the power to bring about his will. Beloved, the saving word of God alone has the power to transform the human heart and make us in to his everlasting people. So now may we hear and believe God's word together. Let's look at the first seven verses of Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? God is not anti-satisfaction. God is anti-satisfaction in anything but him. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and the nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God. And of the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. That he may have compassion on him. And to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. So what are we seeing here? God invites the poor. The thirsty. Which, which those are. Physical words for spiritual realities. Poor, thirsty, lame. That's what we all are spiritually inside. He invites the thirsty and the poor to come to him and to drink. Right? He offers water, wine, milk for free. He asks them, why would you continue to waste your money on things that wouldn't sustain them? To work for things that wouldn't satisfy them. He calls them to listen, to hear that they might live If they do, he'll make an everlasting covenant with them by fulfilling the covenant he made with David. And there's urgency for them. God wants to save them. He wants to heal them. Wants to make them whole. He tells them to seek him while he may be found. Call upon him. Because he's so close and he's so ready to save, he will hear. So forsake Their wicked ways. He's telling them, forsake your wicked thoughts and return to the Lord and he'll have compassion on them and abundantly pardon those who come. What we're seeing in the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 55 is a holy God's willingness to save rebels. His outstretched arms to a persistently rebellious people. God has done this before. He's done this before for them. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He bore them on eagle's wings, carried them across the Red Sea on dry ground, brought them to Sinai, gave them the law. He fed them. He sustained them. He led them. He cared for them. And they spit in his face, became like the nations around them rather than being God's set-apart people, a light to the nations. So it's gracious and beautiful that God is extending this invitation, but They're just going to blow it again, right? And all of God's kindness and mercy is just going to return to him void. It's going to return to him empty. But notice as we read read here, notice the reasoning behind God's invitation. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 together. For, so when we see that word for, you have to go back to right before it. Here's Isaiah's line of thinking. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Forsake your wicked ways. Return to the Lord. He will abundantly pardon because, for, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. We always hear that, and rightfully so, as like a systematic category about God being mysterious and above us and unlike us. And that's very true. But there's a context here. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's a strange rationale. Israel and Judah could not save themselves. They could not pardon themselves. Why? Again, come back to that question. Why are old habits hard to break? Why can't we act contrary to our nature? They couldn't pardon themselves. They're only able to act in accordance with their nature, which is only going to lead them to continue in their rebellion against God. God is saying, but I am not like you. I'm not like you. The basis of God's offer of salvation then is his nature. You see, that's what he's saying here. Return to me and I'll save you because I'm not like you. He's not corrupted. God is not corrupted. God is not tainted. He's not bound by any power greater than himself. And you and I are not better than Israel and Judah. We also come from Adam, and because we do, we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We're born by nature children of wrath, just like all the rest of mankind, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But God the Father is infinitely holy. He is by nature perfect and righteous. And here again we find kind and gracious and merciful and beloved all-powerful, unlimited in being able to do what he wants to do. Do you notice the basis of his invitation here? Come to me and be saved because I am not like you. My ways are not like your ways. My thoughts are not like your thoughts. And so what God is about to do here through the prophet Isaiah is pull back the curtain and give Israel and Judah a glimpse of how his thoughts are not like our thoughts or their thoughts and his ways are not like their ways or our ways. And if we keep it in context, if we keep it for our purposes this morning in context of this offer of salvation, we will find that this unknowable, mysterious God acts to become knowable and understood by his perfectly Saving, effective word. Look now at verses 10 through 13. Four. So here's how his thoughts are not like ours and his ways are not like ours here. Four. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be. That goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For. Here's how we know that's true. Here's how we will know that's true. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. I didn't know trees had hands. But this is what the word of God does. Instead of the thorn, shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar, shall come up the myrtle. And it, as a pronoun, there's an antecedent here. This is the word. The word shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. God is telling his people that his saving word will accomplish the salvation of all who come to him in spite of our propensity to rebel. His word is not like their words. right? His promises don't drop and fall off the map when adversity comes. God doesn't go back on his word. He doesn't find himself helpless to accomplish what he wills. He doesn't find himself powerless to bring about what he wants to do. God says his word is like rain and snow that come down time after time, again and again, accomplishing their purpose, watering the earth, making it produce, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater. So as we observe those things, we're observing a picture about what God's word is able to do and powerful to do. All of nature has been made into a theater by God's design so that Israel and Judah and you and I would understand how God's saving word works. It doesn't come back to him empty. It accomplishes everything God purposes by saying it. It it succeeds in every reason for which God sends it. Look at verse 12. He, he, He will fulfill his covenant. Sinners will be saved. People will have peace. My goodness, one day even the mountains and the trees will break forth into singing and clap their hands. That's when we'll know that West Virginia is almost heaven. (laughs) That will be an amazing thing to see. I mean, all, all the trees, I mean, think about that for a minute. All the trees in this beautiful valley, just imagine them lifting up a song. Just imagine it. Look at what the saving word will do when God sends it in verse 13. And I think, I think this is the crux of the text. The word of God will create something totally different from what it was sown in. Do you see that? Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. So God's word has such transforming power that when it is sown where the soil produces only thorns and briars, You know, like cold, dead, wicked human hearts. What grows is completely unlike the soil. That, beloved, is salvation. God produces that in us. God's word doesn't come into us and find good raw material to work with. God's word comes into us and finds thorns and briars and thistles and deadness. And a corrupted nature. And he produces out of that. Because of what the word does. Salvation and life. That is the power and effect of God's word. It makes a name for the Lord. Wherever it takes root. And it will grow eternally. Into that which glorifies and honors and confirms the word of the Lord. This is his promise. Now we have to ask. In light of the context, in light of Israel's history and where they went from here, chronologically speaking, how can a word do all of that? I mean, technically speaking, God had been speaking to Israel since he created her. They're still wicked. They're still in need of salvation. They're still on this hamster wheel. if If I can say it this way, I think God had been whispering. And this word is his shout. This word of which he speaks here is God in full voice. The word and the reason the word accomplishes what it accomplishes is none other than Jesus Christ himself. For the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. It has become a he. And beloved, he did not and will not return to God empty. But he will accomplish that which God purposes. And he will succeed in the reason for which he was sent. Which is why, beloved, his dying words are, Tetelestai, it is finished. The word did it. And because of Jesus, the righteous servant, in and through this perfect and righteous descendant of David, we who once were lost and hopeless come to him by grace through faith, believing like Abraham did, just that God will keep his promises. We will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. When God's effective word, Jesus, takes root and is sown into our hearts where there are only thorns and briars, will come up cypress and Myrtle, beloved. Do you see it? The saving word of God alone has the power to transform the human heart and make us into God's everlasting people. In this word is life, beloved. In this word, Jesus is peace. In this word, God's word. Jesus alone is living water, heavenly wine, sustaining milk that God is inviting you through his son to come and enjoy forever. In Christ alone is that which satisfies. In Christ alone is compassion and mercy and abundant pardon from God the Father. We can no longer say we're hopeless. No human being can really ever actually say that again. That we're hopeless. It doesn't matter what raw material we do or don't have to work with inside. That's the blessing this morning as we read this text. It doesn't matter what's inside of me. God's word comes in and changes all the agriculture. Changes all the botany. All the biology. So what if my record is horrible? Right? So what if my nature is corrupted? Corrupted. So what if my story is a shameful, dirty mess? So what? God's word produces salvation in me. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Romans ten seventeen. This is what God's word is doing in the church. Revealing to us again and again and again, as we walk through these pages, the word from which comes faith, that you and I might keep believing in Jesus. This word is effective to give life and change us into the image of God's Son. It's an amazing thing. No other voice is God's voice. No other voice can become flesh and always make happen what it wants to make happen. No other word can produce what it wills in us. My voice, as loud as it can get, does not produce obedience in my children. Only the voice of God can do that. And he does it by his word, which is what we have in this text. I might be able to alter behavior for a while. I can't fix the human heart. I can't change in nature. So where do we go when we need truth? Where do we go when we need pardon? Where do we go when we need peace? Where do we go when we need life? We come to him. And we find in Christ all the promises of God kept for us. 2 Corinthians 1.20 The word of God is able to do things that no other word can do. Because that word is a person named Jesus. God will accomplish salvation. He will. God will bring about his will for the world. God will cause us to return to him. And beloved, this morning in this word, he is near. He is close. He is discoverable in Christ. It is the word of God at work in us and nothing else that is able to bring about what God desires for us. Again, He has the power to create something totally different than what we have the ability on our own to produce. So if we're in need, why in the world are we going to anything but the word of God given to us in Christ to meet our need? I say, I need more faith. Well, we certainly don't want to look inside where there are only thorns and briars to try to drum up faith. We look to Christ. We look to his word What do we do when we feel distance between us and God? Whether that's due to suffering or sorrow, sin or wandering, confusion or questioning, we come back to stand under the word. That is, we come and sit at the feet of Jesus, who's who's revealed himself to us here in this book. That is always, always has been, always will be the good portion. To sit at the feet of Jesus and listen. I heard heard of a sermon called Martha Hands and a Merry Heart. We want Martha Hands and we want a merry heart. Remember that story in Luke's Gospel where Jesus is in their house and Mary is just sitting at his feet. And Martha is rushing around and getting things ready and she can't sit still. And of course, when you're rushing to try to serve Jesus, you're going to get miffed at people that aren't working as hard as you are. Right? So she goes to Jesus and is like, hey, do you... I need some some help here. Do you not see that I need some help? And what does Jesus say to her? Martha, Mary's in the right place. Jesus is in the house. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, sit down and receive. That's the good portion. We do this through his word. The gospel is God's invitation to pardon us to be compassionate to us, to produce his will in us. We need the word. We need Jesus, for only Jesus has the power to produce in us what God wants out of us. I think it's frustrating, for lack of a better word, to watch people try so hard to change. I think it's frustrating the way that we try to make others change. Have you ever thought about this? How do we generally get people, generally speaking, how do we get out of somebody what we want from them? Because our methods are usually unloving, and they usually create distance and harm our relationship with that person. We use all kinds of tools to get people to do what we want them to do. From when we're little kids playing on the playground to in relationships, marriages, churches, this is what we do, it's... it's we use guilt. We'll guilt them into doing what we want them to do. We use pressure. Right? We'll hound people. We use manipulation. We use legalism. All to try to produce some type of result that we're after. And we're the most dangerous when we think we're doing that on the side of God. And it slowly or quickly breaks down our relationships eats away at them, ask yourself the question, how does the God, who is three times infinitely holy, how does God produce? What does God do? He loves. He saves. He sends us Jesus. And in so doing, deepens and secures our relationship with him. I started out this morning talking about how no matter how much religious pressure you apply, sin only grows. I stand behind that statement biblically. I stand behind it experientially in my own life. Right. It is not possible for the law, for any law, to produce the righteousness God requires. So the more we force godly results in ourselves... And force them in other people. The less likely it is actually. That anything truly godly will result. We can push and push. And manipulate and guilt. And get very nice looking people outwardly. When the heart is dying. Because it's disconnected from it's source. My words of guilt and pressure and manipulation. Are powerless to bring about the change that glorifies God. That's what we want. To bring about salvation, to give life, to increase your faith, to give you hope. When I speak my word, Tony's word, it comes from the same thorns and briars that are inside of all of you. And so when the two meet, it's dead on dead. There's no charge in that connection. All it does is belittle you and break you down. And, and again, we're, we're not, the opposite of that is not some self-affirming, self-esteem, self-exalting theology. My goodness, no the opposite of that is the gospel who has the words of eternal life whose words give life John six sixty eight. the words of Jesus so you see how the Bible is pointing us to Christ again and again and again here in Isaiah he is the word that is able to produce in us the salvation that God longs to give to us as we believe on him He is the word that God speaks, that God literally sends to accomplish his saving purpose. Beloved, it is this same God. This theme runs all through the Bible. It is this same God. Let the God who said, let light shine out of darkness that is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Creation out of nothing then. When there was nothing, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. That was a metaphor. It was literal. It literally happened. But Paul tells us that's a picture for what God's word does to save us. That's what's happening. There's nothing there. God speaks his life-giving word like he did to Lazarus in Christ, and life results from it. Light results from it. That same voice gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the one effectively at work in us. The only one that's effectively at work in us to produce the results God requires. And speaking of 2 Corinthians, that little section 3 and 4, I think 3.18 helps us put all of this together this morning. Maybe in a little bit more of an accessible way. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. By turning to the Lord, that is by responding to God's invitation by grace through faith, the veil that keeps us from fully seeing his glory, that keeps us from seeing what can give us life, is removed. And with that unveiled face, we behold the glory of the Lord, which we know from 4.6 resides in the face of Jesus. And as we behold, we are being transformed into the same image, the likeness of Jesus together from one degree of glory to another. To behold Jesus is to be transformed. That's how powerful the glory of God in the face of Jesus is. So we need to ask, what is God's method of changing people? How does God accomplish it? By enabling them to behold the word made flesh. His son, Jesus Christ. What do I do to get closer to him? I remove the veil of unbelief and behold his face. And how do I do that? Through his life-saving, life-changing, life-creating, always effective word. Why do we gather week after week of our lives to open the same book together? Why do we do that? Because all that God is and all that he means to do have been made known to us in his Son who is revealed to us in the Word, as the Word made flesh. This mysterious and unknowable God has become knowable through his Son, who is his Word, and in him alone we have life and salvation. The unknowable, mysterious God can't be separated from his saving nature. Beloved, God is changing us by his Word so that we might know him. It is as we draw near to God through Christ and his salvation that we truly begin to understand who this mysterious God is, and according to him, that is what changes us. It's such a kick in the gut and so disappointing when you hear, you know, enough Jesus, we need more. No, you don't. You need more Jesus to change not less you don't like graduate beyond the son of god you don't you don't reach a point as a christian where you no longer are in need of the cross like that's not maturity maturity is like paul who started out by saying i'm the least of all the apostles then later on in his life he thinks he's the least of all the saints and by the end of his life he calls himself the chief of sinners Not because he was running around sinning all the time. Not at all. But he just, he knew Jesus more. And the more you see him for what he is, the more you see yourself for what you are. And instead of crushing you, and defeating you, and killing you, because you see yourself through the lens of a Savior, you live. And you have hope, and you go to the grave like Paul. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain, Paul says. That's where you get. That's how you progress you know him more and more and more and more. And it's just, it's just like a submarine when they're, the, the way they keep themselves from being crushed in by the pressure of the ocean is not by like trying to be stronger than the ocean from the outside. They build up the pressure on the inside so that the outside pressure won't crush them. That's how we want to become. That's what the Word of God does in us. It just begins to push out at a stronger rate of energy than the world crushes in on us. That's what it is to know Jesus. That's what it is to live and sit under the word and to sit at his feet and to grow thereby. That's why we gather as a church and why when we gather, the word of God concerning Christ has to take center stage. Because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. Romans 10.4, He's He's the end of every other means of drawing near to God. He's the end of every other means of being accepted by God, of knowing God, of understanding God. God has given us the word that we might have the continual means of drawing near to our Savior. And this morning, beloved, this morning, as you sit in this place, despite all of our rebellion, all our misunderstanding, all our sinfulness, all our mistakes, the arms of this merciful God are still outstretched for you and I. They're still there. They're still wide open. And He will not turn you away. You know, you keep yourself from the mercy of God. You don't come. You're never going to reach a place where you come to Him and He says, no, 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 I can't. My son's blood is not powerful enough to cover that. No, no, it's finished for all who come. It is finished. You have to come. You have to come to Him. You have to know Him. You have to know Jesus. Despite all our sinfulness, our mistakes, He's still there. That's the power of the Word. Jesus is speaking at the cross to us. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross... Provides all the forgiveness we need for our sins and it provides all the righteousness that a holy God requires that we just don't have and can't produce because all there are are thorns and briars inside. Both are ours. All of the forgiveness, all of his righteousness, if we will just believe. The word of life and salvation spoken by God the Father in his son Jesus Christ cannot be voided over those who believe I ask again the same question from Paul that I asked at the end last week who can bring any charge against God's elect it is God who justifies who is there to condemn us Christ Jesus is the one who died if that blood is on your door the angel of death can't touch you you have to know him and you have to grow by him the, the gospel's not just the way in the gospel is A through Z Know Christ. Come to Him and live. Come to Jesus and live forever. And look, it's, it's not... I'll, I'll close with this. Coming to Jesus is not... We I would get this from Isaiah 55. Coming to Jesus is not sacrificing all the great things for what is right. I would much rather do this. I would much rather go to these places. I would much rather do these things. I would much rather have these things. But... I'll take Jesus. I'll I'll make the right choice. No, no, no. That's like saying you have a white castle and a prime rib. And saying, you know what? I'm going to make a sacrifice today. And I'm going to eat this prime rib instead of this white castle. That's not a sacrifice. You can't come to the greatest of all things and not be satisfied. This is an invitation to life. This is an invitation to live, to know the one who made you, to know one so great that he knows everything about you and loves you anyway. Come to him and have life. Come to Jesus. I'm going to pray and close. I'll be standing down here if you need to come and pray, if you need to receive, you want to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and come and let us know about it, I'll be here. But we're going to sing a few songs, a few verses of this song and, and then we'll be done. But let's pray together.